This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. This podcast has been designed to be listened to like an audiobook from beginning to end. The story isn't linear and will jump back and forth through time, but you'll be a whole lot less lost if you start at episode one and work your way forward from there. Also, if you've been enjoying this program so far, Please do me a favor and subscribe and leave a short review if you're so inclined. It would help the show immensely. Thank you in advance. Episode 12. The boots are waiting on you. Turn your magic on, Umi, she'd say. Everything you want's a dream away. Under this pressure, under this weight, we are diamonds taking shape. Coldplay, adventure of a lifetime. I was on a Chuck Wicks gig somewhere out on the road when I had first moved to Nashville back in 2014 or so. There was a section built into the show where most of the band would leave the stage and Chuck and my guitarist friend Chris Nix would do a sort of broken-down version of one song. Chuck on acoustic guitar and vocals, and Chris playing some atmospheric electric guitar. I was standing side stage with my keyboard player friend, KG, during this break in the show. As we were standing there, I was admiring an amazing pair of snakeskin cowboy boots that Chris happened to be wearing that night. I said to KG, Man, those boots Chris has on are so fucking cool. I don't think I could ever pull off a pair of boots like that. KG just looked at me and smiled and said in his infinite wisdom, Boots are waiting on you, man. That is to say, anything you do, any decision you make in life, is waiting on you to own it. You can do anything you want if you just put your mind to it. All the roadblocks we put up in our heads for various reasons serve only to delay our inevitable arrival in places that we would have gotten to much quicker if we didn't derail ourselves. I firmly believe we all end up where we're supposed to in the long run. Thank you all so much for being here and for taking this ride along with me. This brings us to what might be the most difficult episode for me to write. The story of my adoption. This is only because there's so much raw emotion tied up in it for me. On one hand, I have my adoption to thank in every way for making me an artist. On the other hand, it has been a weight on my heart that I've carried with me for my entire life. I was adopted at birth. My biological mother gave birth to me when she was only 16. My biological father was only 18 at the time. They were just a couple of high school kids. 
The year was 1971, and it was a very different time. I've known that I was adopted from a very early age. I'm not sure when my parents told me, but I remember being very confused and upset about it from the second that they did. I couldn't wrap my head around it. I was just too young to fully understand. I struggled with identity issues for my whole life up until I actually found my birth parents. I never really felt like I fit in anywhere. Even in friend groups I've had for my whole life, I have still felt like a bit of an outsider from time to time, not quite fully integrated. The weird kid. The nerd. It felt like everyone had some kind of special membership for a club that I would never be invited to join. To some degree, I still feel that way from time to time, although I've become more well-adjusted as I've grown older and I've grown more comfortable in my own skin as time has passed. It's almost like I instinctively knew early on that getting on stage and in front of people regularly for my whole life would be the thing that would help kick me out of this funk. Charge head first into discomfort. Embrace it. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. When I was in my mid-twenties, the thought of trying to find my birth parents started to creep in almost daily. It soon became something I would think about and daydream about all the time, although I never actually did anything about it. One day I was talking to a friend of mine, a girl named Beth, about all my thoughts on my adoption. She listened intently to everything I was saying, and she paused a moment at the end of it, and she said, If she's anything like you, I guarantee that no matter where your birth mother is, there is not a single day that goes by that she doesn't think of you. This incredible bit of wisdom and insight on Beth's part was an enormous jolt to me. It made my birth mother real, and I knew that I needed to at least try to find her if nothing else. None of this is to say that I don't absolutely love and cherish my family. I always have. They're my life. They're my everything. My parents that raised me will always be mom and dad to me. And my siblings, neither of whom are my actual blood relatives, will always be my brother and sister. I love them more than simple words can express. Most people with normal families, I'm sure, take for granted that they can look at their siblings and their parents and just know that they're related. I would find myself seeing a random girl or boy somewhere and thinking, I wonder if that's my brother, or I wonder if that's my sister. And I'd do the same thing with older men and women. I wonder if that's my birth mother or my birth father, and so on. I very nervously sat my whole family down one Thanksgiving and admitted to them that I wanted to do a search for my birth relatives. I told myself I would only do this with their blessing. Without it, I wouldn't have been able to move forward. I was also fairly sure they'd understand and be okay with it, but I was really nervous and really scared. It was an incredibly difficult thing for me to do. After a very tearful conversation, they all unanimously gave me their consent to move forward with my search. I explained to them that it wasn't for any failing on their part that I was choosing to do this. I wasn't searching for a replacement family or for a better family. I was already lucky enough to have the best one ever. And they were all just as sweet and supportive as I knew they would be. I was searching for answers and illumination on what had always been a dark corner in my life. I was searching for some kind of path forward. I was stuck. I had reached a point in my life and in my development where the only way out 
was through. It was time to shed my skin and to evolve. I wanted to be as prepared as possible for what I might be in for emotionally, so I went out and bought a half dozen books or more on adoption. I picked up everything that I could find. Through these books, I set about learning more about myself as an adopted person as well. I wanted to know all about my psychological traits as a result of being adopted. I wanted to know why I became who I was. I found a great book of first-person accounts of adoptees that had sought out and were consequently reunited with their birth families. This was an eye-opener. They were not all happy accounts by any stretch. Some, in fact, were absolute horror stories of birth parents that just didn't want to be found. I quickly realized that things could go horribly wrong. There was no guarantee of happiness. I was risking facing rejection a second time if things didn't pan out. I wanted to be prepared for any contingency possible, no matter how painful. I just trusted the process and hoped that I'd come out a changed person for the better on the other side, no matter what the outcome. I learned that adoption itself is trauma. When a child is taken from its birth mother instinctively, he or she experiences this as loss or abandonment. This is an extremely upsetting event. And to make matters worse, if it's done at birth, as in my case, there are no defense mechanisms in place to deal with this trauma. This causes all kinds of extreme psychological damage since there's just no way to cope with it. I will pause right here. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not complaining or trying to get any kind of sympathy. I'm not typically a poor me type of person. Am I lucky to have been adopted by such loving parents? Yes, absolutely. Am I grateful for my adopted family and my siblings and the life that I've lived? Yes, 100%. Am I also fucked up emotionally and dealing with lifelong trauma that still affects me? Yes. But find me someone who isn't. We all have something that haunts us. Something we struggle with. It's just a part of being human. Through my research, I learned that many adoptees seek out positions of high visibility in their lives. Many become actors, musicians, or other kinds of entertainers or high-profile people. The thinking there is, if I become famous, I can be found more easily. It goes without saying that to some degree, this is exactly what I did. Some famous adopted people are Faith Hill, Sarah McLaughlin, Ray Liotta, Keegan-Michael Key, Marilyn Monroe, Debbie Harry, Steve Jobs, and Eddie Vedder. I'm sure there are many others. On a side note, after I had found my birth mother, she revealed to me that she had been in a birth mother's support group for a brief time at some point, along with Eddie Vedder's biological mother. He famously wrote the lyrics to the Pearl Jam hit, Alive, about his adoption. Eddie has always been one of my musical heroes. I was adopted through an organization called the Catholic Family Center in Rochester, New York. In New York State at the time, the law was that both parties, adoptee and birth parent, would have to submit their information not only to the adoption agency, but also to a state registry in order to facilitate a match and a subsequent reunion. I was able to get what was referred to as 
non-identifying information from the agency just by contacting them. Things like, mother enjoyed math, father played drums. Included was also information about my heritage. Interestingly enough, I was always told that I was of Irish and Italian descent, just like my parents who adopted me. I'm not sure whether this came from my adopted parents to make me feel more connected to them, or whether the adoption agency told them that to make them feel more connected with me. Either way, I identified as Irish-Italian for my whole life. As it turned out, this non-identifying information provided me with my true heritage, which is only just a little Irish and just a little Italian. Very little. It turns out I am mostly German and Czechoslovakian. There are some other things thrown in there. I think a very small bit of Native American as well, but not enough to tip any scale. Basically, I'm a total mutt. When I first put in a request for my non-identifying information from the Catholic Family Center, I remember speaking with a woman on the phone who was quite helpful. She guided me through the whole process. She also then became slightly pushy with me, urging me to submit my information to the state registry, telling me that it would highly increase my chances of finding my biological parents. The internet at this time wasn't nearly what it is now. It was the year 2000. I'm sure at this point, finding someone online would be exponentially easier with social media and other platforms and forums that exist for this purpose. Back then, however, it was kind of like finding a needle in a haystack. The woman at the Catholic Family Center told me that she could send me the form via fax and that I would need to fill it out, sign it, get it notarized, and send it back. She urged me to fax it back to her rather than mailing it as it would be quicker. Why the rush, I thought. I took care of it as quickly as possible, mostly to appease this woman who I thought was being really overbearing. And, much to my surprise, the very second that I faxed it back, she immediately called me, and I could hear the excitement in her voice. She said, We have matched you with your birth mother. I knew it the second you put in for your non-identifying information with us. I just couldn't legally tell you until you filled out the state registry form. This is such a relief. All her pushiness made complete sense to me now. She then told me that she had worked in this field for many, many years and had never actually had a match. She was really excited. I was in a bit of shock at how easy it had been. She told me that my birth mother had been in touch with the agency from the time she turned 18 and had updated her info every single time she moved just to make sure that she could be easily found. It was clear now that this woman was indeed a lot like me, just like my friend Beth had said. I was so relieved that I wouldn't be dealing with someone who didn't want me to find her. On the contrary, she wanted to be found. I was told that she would be informed that a match was made and we'd both be receiving each other's current contact info by expedited mail over the following few days. Evidently, my birth mother received my information before I got hers. She called one evening when I wasn't home and left a voicemail. And here is the most shocking thing. I actually recognized her voice on an almost cellular level. It was jarring and comforting all at once. 
I was filled with all kinds of emotions that I wasn't sure exactly how to process. I returned her call that night, and the first thing she said when she picked up the phone was, What took you so long? We spent well over four hours on the phone that night learning about one another. I could hear the excitement and the gratitude in her voice for the fact that I had ended up in such a good place and with such a loving family. She told me that she was basically sent away during a large portion of her pregnancy to what was called a home for unwed mothers. From what I gathered, she wasn't given any choice in the matter. She was told by her parents that she would carry me to term and then immediately give me up for adoption. Her parents pretty much decided all of this for her. It sounded incredibly traumatic. There was a whole lot of shame surrounding the whole thing. She told me that she listened to the album Tapestry by Carole King almost exclusively during the time she was pregnant with me to calm herself down. I've always felt very connected to that album, and now I knew why. I heard it in the womb through all the very first months of my development. She told me that she celebrated my birthday, June 26th, every single year. And on the evening of my 21st birthday, she stayed home the whole night, refusing to be away from the phone, thinking that it might be the day that I tried to find her. It ended up taking me about another 10 years after that. We spoke a lot that week. I was a complete emotional wreck. I think it may have been relief that this darkness in my life was finally being illuminated after so many years of wondering, but it was a lot to process for me. I remember during that time getting into the shower on many mornings and just completely breaking down while the hot water rushed over me. The emotions were pouring out of me and I had no control over them. My birth mother informed me that she knew how to reach my biological father and she told me she would be happy to reach out to him if I wanted. I figured that since the door was half kicked in, I might as well knock it down completely, so I told her yes. She told me that my birth father was a drummer who had been very successful. His name sounded vaguely familiar to me when she mentioned it, but I couldn't quite place where I knew it from. She then told me she had a few photos of him that she'd be happy to email to me if I wanted, and I said of course. These were the days of dial-up internet. When I got the photos from her and began the agonizing process of downloading them, the first photo that started loading on my computer screen, line by line, was clearly a photo of a band that my birth father had been in. I recognized him right away in the photo because, honestly, he looked just like me. The craziest part was what came next. Much to my shock and surprise, Standing just a few people over from him was none other than former manager of my band Exploding Boy, my friend Tony Gross. I almost couldn't believe my eyes. Tony and my birth father were actually in a band together? I called him immediately to let him know and he was nearly knocked over with surprise and shock. It turned out that he and my birth father actually lived together under the same roof at one point. As a funny aside, I spoke with Tony just the other day and I told him I was about to tell this story on the podcast. He laughed and he told me that initially when I called to let him know that I had found my birth father, there was a split second right before I told him who it was that he thought I might be calling to tell him that he was my father. In his words, 
I just thought about my history and the timeline, and for a second, it all made sense. We had a good laugh about it. As a reminder, my birth father was the drummer for the hit Canadian band Toronto. His gold albums adorned the walls of the front lounge at GFI Studios where I had been recording music with Exploding Boy from the time that I was 15 years old until my late 20s. His face was actually on the album covers. He was right under my nose the whole time. I even got hired to do some work on a local radio commercial in Rochester with the original keyboardist for Toronto when I was about 16 or 17, so the connections were almost a bit eerie. I asked Tony at the time if he ever had any idea or inkling about my birth father, and his response was, Fuck no! He then said, It all makes complete sense to me, though. Your birth father was one of the most musical people I've ever known or worked with. I know where you get it all from now. Not long after all of this, my birth mother arranged a trip down to Florida so we could meet each other in person. My sister Julia and my brother John coordinated things and made the trip down also, and they were able to meet her at the same time as me. My birth father and his wife and six kids made a trip down to Florida as well, and I was able to meet all of them. He also had another daughter from a previous relationship, so altogether with his seven kids and my birth mother's two kids, I had nine half-siblings in all. I have two brothers named Michael and two brothers named John. I'm Larry. This is my brother Daryl. This is my other brother Daryl. Some of them actually have kids of their own at this point. I keep in touch with some of them via social media, but that's about the extent of it at this point. I had a close 19-year relationship with my birth mother, Sadly, that came to an end a few years ago. It just hasn't continued. It's been this way for some time for reasons I won't go into. I never really kept in touch with my birth father regularly. I hold no ill will towards either of them. I'm grateful to have found them both. And I'm grateful for all of my half-siblings. They really are some incredibly sweet and enormously talented people. As it turns out, the music and artistic traits are strong with every last one of us. I feel like it answers the question whether talent is a genetic trait or not. I firmly believe it is. Both of my parents that raised me got to meet my birth mother and her entire extended family at one point also, and I got to meet all my biological aunts and uncles and my biological grandparents on my birth mother's side. To reiterate once again, I wasn't seeking a replacement family through all of this. I just wanted answers. I wanted to know where I came from because I needed to lay claim on my origin story. I feel like making this decision helped free me from some pretty heavy emotional constraints. I also feel like my identity came into much better focus at that point, and I have felt much more whole as a person ever since that time. If you don't know where you came from, it's nearly impossible to know where you're going. Luckily, I managed to find my roadmap. And now, I know. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M I S T E R M I C H A E L J. 
Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening.